morning, Doxa. How are we doing? Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name is Nate. Someone say hi, Nate. Hey, good to be with you guys. We are, we are finishing up this week and the next week our series in Mark's account of Jesus' life and ministry. Again, if you've got a Bible, Mark 14, you can flip there. If you've got an app, that'll help you. A table of contents is your best friend if you're not super comfortable with the Bible. But last week we saw Jesus, some, some of his last moments with his friends praying in this olive garden, and then he's arrested by this mob. And this week we're going to take it from that moment through his, his trial up to the moment of his death on the cross. So this week we're kind of, we're centering on the cross and the next week we'll focus on resurrection, empty tomb, what do we do with this whole book that Mark is, is trying to tell us about Jesus. But again, this week the cross. Someone say cross. A cross is an interesting thing, right? Like we're used to maybe wearing them as, as jewelry, maybe you got a cross necklace on or a cross tattoo. Maybe you grew up in a church that, that has a cross kind of prominently displayed above it or in the building somewhere. But if you were someone from the first century or someone from kind of the Roman Empire, the cross would be this really jarring, disturbing, unsettling thing to center your faith around. Like they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't get why you would turn this object of, of torture and public shame and humiliation into jewelry. Why, why would you get that tattooed on your body? No, that's not, that's not wrong. Like I'm not, I'm not making you feel ashamed for you're like hiding your cross necklace. Like, oh my, no, that, that's not it. But I think sometimes we can get so used to the cross being the symbol that we forget what it's pointing to. We can get so used to the cross being this kind of comforting thing or maybe even this like cute thing that we're not compelled by it anymore. Now, again, maybe you grew up in a church that had a, a cross prominently displayed, but no one actually told you what that meant. You, you just sort of saw it around and you knew, okay, this is supposed to be important, but I, I, I don't really get it. Here's what can happen to us. We can grow so used to the cross that it becomes small to us. Someone say small. The, the small version of what it's supposed to be. And, and miss out uh, uh, the life transformation and change that's supposed to result from the cross. You, you're not jarred by it anymore. You're not challenged by it. You're not compelled by it. it it's, it's kind of comfortably in its box. One of my neighbors, we were talking about church stuff, and, and he was trying to figure out what kind of church this is. It was a little confusing to him. And um, he's like, so you're one of those with the Father, Son, and the Spirit thing? I'm like, yeah, yeah, one of those. And he's like, okay, so the whole Jesus died on the cross for our sins thing? I'm like, yeah, yeah, one of those. And he's like, yeah, cool, whatever. Unmoved. Unfazed. He, he said, like, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but that, that meant nothing to him at all, personally. And, and maybe you have the right Sunday school answers and the right, like, theological boxes you can check, but, but at the end of the day, it's become another phrase, like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Carry on. I got things to get to today. When are you done? I got lunch to eat, right? How would you be able to tell? What would be the check engine light in your soul if you had made the cross smaller than it was supposed to be? How would you know? Could, could you even tell personally if the cross had become smaller than it's supposed to in your life? I, I think one way you could tell would be if you didn't hate your sin. I know hate is a strong word, right? But if, if you didn't actually hate your sin, you're kind of like, yeah, cool, sin. I, I mean, you know, some people really got sin. I'm not as bad as those guys, whatever. Or you walk into a context like this and you... You've got some stuff going on, but you're putting on, you know, your Sunday best and your, your, your church face. You don't hate your sin. You're, you're pretending it's not a big deal or pretending it's not a big deal in your life. You're not actually free from sin, from that old slave master. You, you just are pretending that you've kind of negotiated a truce with your sin. So you've got some secret stuff going on, but nobody really knows. No one needs to know. It's kind of personal, right? 
Again, it doesn't look like freedom from the power of sin. It looks like pretending in your life. That would be one way you could tell if the cross was becoming small to you. I think another way would be you're really aware of your sin. You, you know it's there and you walk into a place like this with this weight of, of guilt and shame and fear on your shoulders. In fact, so much of your religious life has been trying to work your way out of this hole you feel like you're in. And so you're like, yep, Jesus died on the cross, but man, I got a lot of work to do, right? You, you almost feel like you've got to pay God back somehow or, or again, try to work your way out of the feelings of inadequacy and guilt you feel. And so coming into a place like this feels exposing because you're like, man, I've got a list from last week of the stuff I'm supposed to do and I, I can't keep up with this week. And you feel like you're on a treadmill. Your faith is this constant performance and you keep falling behind. It's exhausting, it's not liberating, it's not freeing. You don't, you don't actually feel forgiven. You kind of know you're supposed to get it. Yep, Jesus died on the cross, my sins, I'm forgiven. But your experience, it hasn't moved from your head to your heart out into your hands. You're trying to work your way towards a feeling out, work your way out of feeling guilty or ashamed or afraid before God like you're on this razor's edge and, and, and one day he might just drop you because you're not doing well enough. Again, you, you don't really live like you're forgiven, even if you know you're supposed to feel that way. Whether you are, are pretending or you're performing, both of those are, are this view of the cross shrunk in our lives. I think there might be a third category of this in here. You might just be passive. These things don't move you. Like, yeah, I got my get out of hell free card. What more do you want from me, man? I got a life to live, right? I got a job. I got goals. I got, you know, your faith is this, this passive thing. And so you show up every once in a while when you feel like it, when you don't need the extra sleep. But maybe there was a time in your life where you were moved by Jesus and you, and you had this fire or something, but, but along the way it's grown so cold. Again, the, the idea of being moved by the cross, that's great for those young Christians, but once real life hits, I don't know, man. We'll deal with it. They'll learn later, right? I can relate to all three of those. Sometimes it depends on the day. I, I think for all of us, we can find ourselves with these check engine lights on in our soul, and we didn't even realize that they were pointing to the fact that the cross has grown small in our view. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you might have questions about the Bible and you're like, yeah, that whole creation thing and I, I don't know how this all works. So let, me, let me just tell you, like the centerpiece of the whole thing, of the whole Bible, our whole worldview is this cross. We got nothing better for you than this. If you start following the Bible, you, you will find like wisdom for your life and, and, and help in your life, but man, we have nothing better for you than the cross. If you miss the cross, it doesn't matter if you have some tips and tricks for marriage or finances or whatever, this is it, this is the big deal. And frankly, if you really see the cross for what it is, it actually begins to put all those other questions in the right place. I am not asking you to turn your brain off for a second, but I'm saying focus on this. If you don't get the cross, you don't get what this is all about. So what is, what is the big deal with this cross? We're gonna look at, at Jesus the moments again after he's arrested up to his death, and together we're gonna try to ask the question again, what does this mean for us? And my prayer that I've been praying for myself and for all of us is that God would give us a bigger view of the cross that would begin to change us and move us and transform everything about our lives. That this upsetting and arresting and disturbing event in history, Jesus dying on the cross, would actually begin to transform our lives. You ready for that? Someone say, yep. Some of you are not ready. All right, cool. Mark 14. Let's go there. Verse 53. 
So Jesus spent this night praying with his best friends. He told them, hey, I'm going to be arrested. You are going to abandon me. And then he goes into the garden and talks with the Father about the plan. The plan from eternity past that had been written in scripture that, that they were walking through together. And after those moments of him talking about drinking this cup of wrath and God's judgment, he's arrested by a mob led by one of his best friends. He's betrayed by one of the 12 Judas. We pick it up right after that moment. Verse 53, Mark chapter 14. And they, this mob, led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes came together. This is kind of a weird midnight trial thing going on and it's the, the culture, cultural and religious, the theological leaders of the Jewish people gathered together in Jerusalem, kind of their capital, for a trial of Jesus. And the high priest was over the temple. So again, the centerpiece of cultural, social, political life, that guy is leading this trial in the middle of the night for Jesus. And all the way back in chapter three, they, they'd been trying to find a way to, to get Jesus. They finally get him in front of them. And so what are they gonna do with him? What are they gonna accuse him of? How are they gonna try to tear him down? Verse 54, Peter had followed him at a distance right in the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Peter had stood up and said, I will never leave you, I will never abandon you, even to death, even if everyone else walks away from you. And then he, he runs. Jesus is taken and he runs. And so, so I, I wonder if in shame or, or just in curiosity, he kind of like slips in with the mob and, and he waits outside to see what's gonna happen to Jesus while this trial goes on. We'll pick Peter up later in a minute, but, but let's see what's going on with this weird midnight trial. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. They, they couldn't find anything that he had actually done wrong that they could accuse him of, and so, so people are even coming in lying and trying to find some reason for them, but, but they can't get something against him. Verse 57, some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. In three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. We saw in chapter 13, Jesus said, hey, the temple will be destroyed. But he wasn't saying he was gonna tear it down. They're framing this of like, hey, Jesus is trying to tear down our faith. Jesus is trying to tear down our religion. But, but even then, he didn't say that. That was a prophecy that came true in AD 70, less than 40 years after this. The temple was actually torn down. There is no temple in Jerusalem today, just a wall kind of retaining where it used to sit on top of. So Jesus was telling the truth, but, but they were lying and trying to frame it like he is gonna tear it down. Verse 59, even about this, their testimony did not agree, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Are you the anointed one? Are you the Messiah? Are you actually gonna tell me that you are the one we've been waiting for for generations? Are you the one promised in the Old Testament? Remember, these guys had memorized the Old Testament in their youth. They knew that there were promises of a savior coming. So he's asking him straight up, is that you? 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. He's not mincing words. He's not dancing around it. He's saying, I am that, that Savior, that Messiah, that Christ that you have been waiting for. That's the one. I, I was promised thousands of years ago that I would be coming. That is me. But he says something more than that. He's actually quoting a prophecy in Daniel 7, this, this son of man coming on the clouds. If you remember from our Daniel series, there's this, this vision he gets of, of Yahweh, of God enthroned. And one, like a son of man, comes on the clouds to receive an eternal kingdom from him. 
And in the whole Bible, God is the cloud rider. There's no one else who rides in on clouds like this, so it's this weird picture of God, but, but a divine one with God receiving the kingdom. It's a picture of Jesus and the Father, the Trinity, in the Old Testament. He's saying, I'm the Savior you promised, that was promised you, but I'm so much more than that. There's actually something about me that you still haven't seen yet. I am the one that that was all pointing to. I will come in. You will see me riding on the clouds. That, that's who I am. These men who, who would claim to, to be leading the faith, who would claim that they are looking for and longing for and desiring the Savior to come, he is there in their midst. He says, yes, that's me. And what are they gonna do with him? Are they gonna bow down and worship? Are they gonna say, finally, we've been waiting, we've been hoping? Oh, finally, you came clean? Finally, you told us? Verse 63, the high priest tore his garment. He is so angry, he goes all Hulk Hogan and just rips it off in front of everyone, right? He tore his garment and said, what further witness do you need? We don't need any, anyone else to try to come against him. He has said it with his own mouth. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? It's blasphemy because Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah and more than that, to be divine. If you ever heard someone say, Jesus never claims to be God, I just want you to think back in Mark. There have been so many moments where Jesus is showing his, his very religious audience that he is actually God. God in flesh, God come to ransom and save. When he forgives sins and, and the religious leaders around are like, who can forgive sin but God alone? And, and Jesus is like, yes, your sins are forgiven. Here I am, right? Who rides on the clouds but God alone? Jesus says, that's me, I'm here. The high priest gets it, he says, that is blasphemy, you are claiming something that no human has a right to claim. Jesus is telling him, this is who I am, I am the savior and I'm more than that. Verse 64 again, he says, you heard this blasphemy, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him again, saying, prophesy, like, tell, tell us who hit you. If, if you are who you say you are, go ahead, tell us who hit you. And the guards received him with blows. They, they pretend that they want the right religious answers. They pretend they actually want to know who Jesus is, but their hearts are set against him. They don't want to know who he is. They want to find a way to destroy him because they've already decided that they're not going to follow him no matter who he is. No matter if they've seen him perform miracles. No matter if they've seen him heal bodies and teach with authority and multiply food. It doesn't matter. They're finding a way to destroy him. They're pretending they, they want an answer, but really, they just want him gone. Now, they've condemned him deserving death, but they didn't actually have the authority to kill him like this, especially not in Jerusalem this kind of hotbed of religion, but the, the Roman authorities were there too. So they have to try to find a way to get the Romans to kill him because they can't take him out in the streets and kill him themselves. We're, we're gonna see how they do that in a minute, but let's go back to Peter, who's been waiting outside and kind of watching to see what will happen. Verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls, the high priest, came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. This isn't like an accusation, but Jesus had come in with a big crowd in Jerusalem, and so Peter, one of Jesus' boys, he would have been there with him, right? If she had shown up there, she would have been like, oh, yeah, that guy was with Jesus. Or when he was teaching or, or cleansing the temple or whatever, if Peter was just by, she might have been in the crowd and said like, oh, you were with Jesus, weren't you? It doesn't seem to be this like brutal accusation, but just this little girl comes like, hey, I think I've seen you before. But Peter is so freaked out and ashamed. This one that said, I will fall you to death, that, that he is going to do something that a few hours before he swore he would never do. He's going to deny Jesus. Verse 68, he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway on the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man's one of them. Like his reaction was so weird, like, no, dude, I saw you. And so she's like, wasn't he, 
He was with Jesus, guys. I'm not crazy, right? But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. He had an accent. He had the similar accent to Jesus. They're like, dude, we know, like, what is going on here? Like, yeah, you were with Jesus, right? There's no denying it. There's no escaping it. Verse 71, though, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He is calling down the God of the universe to condemn him, to damn him if he actually is lying right now, which is a horrible thing to do because he's lying. Like, he's clearly lying, but he's like, man, would God strike me down? Like, God is so gracious to not just destroy him right there. But he is so freaked out and so afraid that that he is willing to say whatever he can, whatever he can to not be pulled in with Jesus. He doesn't know what's going on up there in the trial, but he's going to say anything, including bringing curses on his own head, to not be caught. Again, this one that had said, I will fall you to death, now abandons Jesus. Not because there was a mob or a great trial that was coming at him, but a little girl, a few people around the fire saying, hey, weren't you with Jesus? Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter, Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The weight of what he has done, it, it crushes him. And Jesus had told him, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. It came true. Now maybe if you're skeptical about the Bible, you might see something in here where where the other accounts of this moment say, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And in Mark's account, it says, before the rooster crows, twice. I just want to explain that for a second. Roosters kind of crow whenever they want in the night, right? I don't know if you've been around barnyard animals lately. That's maybe not the average Madisonian experience. But if you've, if you've been anywhere with a rooster, they, they crow all, the, all kinds of time in the night. It's not just like the cartoon where it's like first thing in the morning, like, da, na, 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 and then the rooster crows, right? It's, it's different than that. So this rooster was walking around and crowed while Peter's denying Jesus. But all of the accounts is saying, before that rooster crowing first thing in the morning, daybreak, you'll deny me three times. And that happened. The other three are sort of summarizing this whole event, saying before that final moment, you'll have denied me three times, but Mark is recording with Peter kind of telling him the details and telling him what happened step by step. So, so all of it is saying Peter's going to deny Jesus before the rooster crows at sunrise, but Mark includes that one detail from Peter saying like, yeah, during the night there, there was this other time too, and it, I remembered it as at the end of it, that this rooster crowed in the middle of the night. So, so again, it's not, it's not saying something different, but but this one that had said, I will follow Jesus to the death. Before the sunrise, before the rooster crows at a new dawn, has denied Jesus and invoking curses on himself. We go back to the religious leaders finding a way to deny, or to destroy, rather, Jesus. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Maybe you've heard of Pilate, Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor over, over this whole region. And he's in Jerusalem for the Passover. His job is to keep the peace. Passover was a time of them celebrating liberation and freedom from Egypt, from slavery, from oppression. And so this is a time where there'd be a lot of political unrest and people thinking back to this celebration going, hey, the Romans are here right now. We need liberation. We need freedom. So Pilate is there both to keep the peace and a sign of Rome's authority over them. No, no, no. You're not getting out of this. We're in charge here. You're under our thumb. That's his job. Keep the peace. 
And so these religious leaders are going to come to him to try to get him to kill Jesus for them. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Now it seems like what's happened here is, is the religious leaders know Pilate doesn't care about some theological debate, who's the Messiah, whatever. He doesn't care about those categories. He's not going to kill someone for blasphemy within Judaism. So they have to frame this differently for Pilate in order to get Pilate to, to listen up. So they say, hey, Jesus is actually this political ruler. He's claiming to be a king, and, and we know Rome is in charge here, and so you've got to do something about him. Now again, these people that are supposed to represent God and, and lead the Jewish people are actually colluding with the Romans and, and giving into Roman authority and power during a time when they're celebrating God's deliverance from slavery in order to destroy Jesus. They're telling Pilate he claims to be king, and so Pilate has to listen. That's an offense against Rome. He can't just let that slide by. So he asks Jesus plainly, are you king of the Jews? And his answer is weird. You have said so. The Greek construction is a little bit odd. It's basically Jesus saying, I'm not denying what you're saying. I agree with what you're saying, but that's not my main claim. It sort of puts the weight back on the person asking the question. So Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the king, but you know that's not why I'm here. I'm the king, but you know that's not what I've been claiming. That's not what I've been doing. You know that's not how this has gone down. Again, he's not denying that he's the king, but, he, but he's telling Pilate, like, man, come on, you know. That, that's not why I'm in front of you today. Pilate, though, it, he's not interested in justice being done, per se. He's more interested in keeping the peace. We have verse 3. The chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again said to him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Some say amazed. Jesus did so many amazing things. Again, miracles and, and teaching with authority, all of these things. People were amazed all the time, but what amazed Pilate in this moment was the fact that Jesus could be slandered against, accused of so many things, spoken so terribly to, to his face, and he's not fighting back. He's not, he's not pushing back. He's not insulting them. He's not, he's not speaking cynically towards them. He just takes it. His face is set. He knows the plan. He knows what he's walking to. And so they can say terrible things about him and lie about him right in front of him, and he's not going to argue. It's amazed Pilate. It's caught his attention here. And so Pilate is going to try to find a way to get Jesus off. He's going to try to find a way to actually get Jesus out of being killed, but he knows he can't go right against the religious leaders because that would cause division at a time of political unrest. It's a, it's a fragile moment for him to keep the peace, and so he's going to go to the crowd because he knows that the, he, Jesus has been popular. Jesus has taught them and fed them all these things, and so he's going to try to find a way to get the crowd to get Jesus off the hook here. Verse 6, now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Again, this time of celebrating Passover, of liberation from slavery, Pilate lets one person off as a way to kind of let off some, some steam. He's like, yeah, totally, let's celebrate, have one person. Giving you one person so that, that you don't think about the situation that you're in, so you don't raise any other alarms or, or, or conflict here. And there's a guy named Barabbas who's part of an insurrection. He's in jail. He's been tried, convicted, justice done because he was a murderer. Barabbas might have been a zealot. Zealots were people trying to kick off the kingdom of God by killing Roman soldiers or even killing prominent and rich Jewish people that they thought were colluding with Rome. They would carry daggers so that they could assassinate when, when the moment came. Barabbas might have been one of those guys in a failed insurrection, again, to kick off the kingdom of God through violence and through their own willpower. Verse 8, the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? 
Is that who you want? Because again, you welcomed him into town. You've been listening to him teach. Do you want Jesus? He's finding a way to, to get Jesus off the hook. And, and look at verse 10. For he perceived it was out of envy the chief priest had delivered him up. He knew what was going on here. He knew it wouldn't be just to kill Jesus. And so he's trying to find a way out. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have them released for them Barabbas instead. Pilate again said to them, then, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Like, what do you want me to do with this guy? Because I know that he hasn't done anything wrong. I know you guys are supposed to like him. Like, what should I do here? In verse 13, they cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It's a terrible miscarriage of justice. Jesus is not guilty. He is, he is innocent of everything put against him, but Pilate would rather keep the peace, keep the crowd happy and the religious leaders happy than do justice and let this innocent man off the hook. The religious leaders who, who have brought Jesus to Pilate, they're pretending that they want the Savior when they don't really want him. They're pretending they want righteousness and to walk well before God, but really they're hiding envy and a hunger for power and their own prominence. Peter claimed that he would follow Jesus to the end, but he's been crushed under his own lack of ability to perform, to walk up to his talk. He hasn't been faithful even to what he said a few hours before. And so he's crushed under the weight of pretending, and so he's going to lie before people. And Pilate's passive. Again, rather than justice being done, he would rather keep the peace, satisfy the religious leaders of the crowd, even if one innocent man has to die. It says he scourged Jesus. Scourging was the first step in this process of crucifixion. The, the victim would be whipped, and, and the whip would often have bone or pieces of metal in so that it would tear. It wouldn't just cut the back, but it would tear pieces of flesh. Some people would even die at this stage. It was so brutal. But crucifixion was this ancient torture that the Romans really perfected. It was painful, but it was so much more than just pain. A person would be hung up on a cross, nails through their, their hands or, or the, their forearms and through their feet. And over a period of up to four days, they would, they would be exposed sometimes put in front of like the, the main highways or, or out right outside of town. And they would either die of blood loss or dehydration or ultimately they would suffocate under their own weight. Like, the human body wasn't, wasn't made to hang up like that and so what would happen is under the, their own body weight, their lungs and, and their diaphragm would stop being able to work. And so for every breath that you would draw if you were hung on the cross, you'd have to push your scourge back up the wood by your hands and your feet, pushing off of those nails that held you there just to draw breath until you couldn't take it anymore and under your own body weight you would suffocate. It was painful. It was brutal and it was shameful. You'd be hung there naked. Again, set out in a very public place so everyone could see you and honor and shame were a big deal in this culture. In fact, there are places in the Middle East today where, where there are honor killings. If you dishonor your family or your tribe, then you could be killed to restore family honor. What the Romans did was they hung you up at your most ashamed and exposed and alone and pained somewhere public so that, that your community, your neighbors, your relatives would all watch you die slowly. There's no dignity in that. There's no value of human life in these moments. You were, you were like a piece of meat hung up there begging for mercy, 
crying out. And after you would die, every time your mom or dad or, or your siblings or your cousin would go to the market, they would look that person in the eyes and go, did you watch? Like, did you, did you watch them naked as they were sobbing? As they finally gave up the ability to draw another breath? Did, were, did you see them too? The Romans did this publicly at, to make an example of every person they crucified. And in fact, it was so shameful and, and so disgusting that Roman citizens often weren't allowed to be crucified. It was so low in their eyes. And the Old Testament even takes it another step further in, in Deuteronomy 21 where, where it says, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Jewish people in the law, they, they weren't allowed to have a, a person crucified and hung overnight because it, it was like the curse of God was on that person. It was such a horrible thing. That's what... That's what they condemned Jesus to. Verse 16, the soldiers led him away inside the palace. It's the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They've got all the guards around as if a mob is going to come and free him when the mob just turned their backs on him. And they clothed him with a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him in the purple cloak, put on his own, his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is a, a bitter irony in this passage that Jesus really is the king, and not just king of the, the Jews, but the king of the universe. And they're taking these symbols of like a Roman emperor or a king, and they're using those to mock and humiliate and shame him. These symbols of his authority and power are the exact things they're using to, to drive him in the dirt. In verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, coming in to celebrate Passover, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Jesus is too weak and beaten down to carry his cross. They brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. That would have dulled the pain some, but Jesus was, was, was going to feel every bit of this. There wasn't a way out. He was going to walk step by step through the plan. And they crucified him. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. So he's naked. He has no possessions. He's alone. It was the third hour when they crucified him, or nine in the morning. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And that's not a charge, right? It doesn't say murder. It doesn't say insurrection. It doesn't say robbery. It says, this is the king. And that's one of the things that Mark is showing us through this whole book. How does Jesus become the king? This is a moment, again, of brutal irony. This is the way that Jesus claims his throne. It's on a cross. And with him they crucified two robbers, verse 27, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Again, these religious leaders are saying, hey, if you just show us a miracle, we'll believe. But, but a few days later, when there is an empty tomb, when there is no body left, when they had watched him die, but Jesus is alive, they see, but they still don't believe. This isn't an eyes issue or a head issue, this is a heart issue, they don't want him to be the savior. It doesn't matter what he does. Even those who were crucified with him, Mark tells us, reviled him. He's completely isolated there. 
on the cross. When the sixth hour came, noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. Creation itself is expressing how awful, how horrific this is. That, that the one who, who created everything is dying on a cross. There's darkness. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of Psalm 22, 1, written a thousand years before this moment, a prophecy of what would happen to Jesus. That the second member of the Trinity God in flesh would actually experience something that had never happened in all reality, all existence, all eternity, that the Father and Son would experience a division as the Son took punishment for sin. That Jesus would be forsaken by the Father even though he didn't deserve any of it. He had no sin, he didn't deserve punishment, anything. But he was separated from the Father and drank the cup of the Father's wrath against sin. He is forsaken in that moment, not just by people, not just a miscarriage of justice or pain and fear, but actually the God of the universe casting judgment on the Son. Some bystanders hearing it, they didn't understand. They said, behold, he's calling to Elijah. They kind of had a folk tale that Elijah would come and, and, and help people in times like this. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. They're actually prolonging Jesus' pain in this. They're giving him something to drink so that he carries on a little bit just to see if something interesting happens. They want to see one more miracle even if it costs Jesus pain to do. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is really significant. We're going to unpack it more later. But the curtain of the temple represented a separation between a place called the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies is the place where God said his presence would, would be manifest. The whole world can't contain God, but he said, people will experience my presence there. And so you didn't just get to barge into that place. It was set, set apart. It was sacred space. But this curtain was 60 feet wide and 30 feet, or 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide. And some um, Jewish commentators would say it was as, as wide as your hand. It was that thick. It, this wasn't a natural thing, this, this curtain being torn. That didn't happen. But in this moment, as the son drinks the cup of wrath, as he takes judgment for sin, God's presence is unleashed from that place. God is no longer located or found in a special temple or something like that, but through the cross, God can be experienced by people anywhere, all kinds of people. In fact, that happens right after that in verse 39. Look, when the centurion who stood facing him, this guard who was supposed to watch the, the criminal die, the prisoner die, when he saw this in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. There's something about the way that Jesus died. There's something about the way that he breathed his last. That this man, whose job it is to watch people die, who has seen hundreds of people die, his eyes are open. He says, there's something about Jesus that is different than everyone else. Even in this moment, I think we're supposed to see Mark, Mark showing us, like even this guy begins to have faith and see Jesus for who he is. There's something about Jesus that's different than everyone. Mark has one more note to include for us in verse 40. He says, there are also women looking on from distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Justice and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is kind of a, a weird note for Mark to include because women's testimony wasn't allowed in court at this time. You had to be a Jewish man for your testimony to be allowed. And so Mark is giving these women dignity and value and saying, no, they were faithful. 
Even when so many of his followers abandoned him and the crowd abandoned him, actually these women that had been with him for so long, they were faithful, they followed him. Again, even if their testimony wouldn't have been allowed in court, he said, no, it's true, they were there. They were with Jesus, they followed him to the end. Okay, so we've walked through step by step these moments of what happened to Jesus. I just want to summarize what happened to him here. Because again, it was more than just pain, right? Although there was great pain in it from the moment that, that they started spitting on him and beating him, all the way up to him breathing his last, there was incredible pain. There was shame. People spat on him all through the night, and these soldiers spat on him. He was hung up naked and exposed for these crowds to see. Even the people next to him being killed with him start reviling him. There's incredible shame. He's stripped naked. He, he experiences poverty where they, he has nothing left. There's a miscarriage of justice where this innocent one is condemned guilty and punished for it. There's fear. Step by step from the moment he's taken, every next step brings more shame and more pain up to his death. He's abandoned and, and he drinks the cup of wrath being forsaken by the Father. Punishment on his shoulders he didn't deserve. Why? And let me just say again, if you feel like your sin is not that big of a deal, why would Jesus die on the cross? If you really don't have that much sin to deal with in your life, why would Jesus die? This would make no sense if sin didn't matter to God, if it wasn't an affront against the holy God of the universe. But also, if you were trying to pay God back and work your way out of debt, then why would Jesus go through this for you? If he was just gonna turn around and pass you the bill to try to earn off, why would he go through this for you? That it's not about you pretending you don't have sin or performing. Jesus was, was in this moment taking the good justice of God against evil and sin and meeting it with God's mercy to sinners. What he is doing in this moment is he is experiencing abandonment so that anyone who would look on him and trust him to pay for their sin would actually be accepted. He was abandoned so you could be accepted. He takes the curse of God on his shoulders so that you could receive the blessing of God's presence and fellowship, the riches of heaven that Jesus earned credited to you if you trust him. He took great pain so that at the end of your life, it, it wouldn't be more pain, it would actually be healing in God's presence. This curtain was torn in two, and Hebrews 10 tells us that, that that is symbolizing the fact that you can actually barge into the throne room of heaven through Jesus. There's no more sacrifice you need to offer, no blood of bulls and goats or your own religious devotion or hard work or best efforts to clean up your life. What Jesus accomplished for you is that you can experience God's presence. You can have a seat at the table like a son or daughter of the king through the sacrifice of the son that you can be brought near to God now into forever. Through Jesus, you can be accepted. Jesus, Jesus experienced poverty because in our natural state, our souls are bankrupt, but, but his riches can be credited to your account if you trust him. Jesus was shamed publicly humiliated, spat on, hung up naked. He experienced great shame so that you wouldn't feel shame anymore. You could be covered in his cloak of righteousness. Accepted before the God of the universe and nothing to prove in front of people. That is what he was accomplishing for you. He was forsaken so you could be forgiven and free. No room to pretend, no room to perform, no, no space to be passive anymore. You could actually be united to the Father through Jesus. 
That is what this is about. And this is the plan from the beginning. I don't have time to go into it now, but Psalm 22 over and over is is in detail talking about what happened here. Written a thousand years before these moments, this is the plan. For justice to be done, but grace and mercy to be lavished on your head when you look at Jesus and trust him to be good enough for you. And next week we're going to see the resurrection that proves that everything he said and accomplished was enough for you. There's nothing left for you to try to pay back or earn. There's no space for you to pretend. The cross is empty and the tomb is empty and Jesus has risen for you. Is that good news? So what do we do with this, friends? People like me and like you who struggle with pretending and performing passivity, what do we do with this? My prayer has been as we look at the cross, there would be no more space for pretending. There would just be freedom actual freedom to say no to our sin because it doesn't hold us anymore. Freedom because we are free before the God of the universe. He fully sees us, fully knows us, but fully loves us in Christ. So why pretend? When, when stuff is not going right in your life, when you're not living up to who you're supposed to be, when, when you know you want to like, tell people in your community and confess, why pretend anymore? You don't have to pretend before God. You don't have to pretend before anyone else. If you're free before God, who can you not be free before? We don't have to be a people who pretend anymore. We can be free because he was forsaken for you. And forgiveness. This truth you know moving into your emotions and out into your hands. You can actually obey as someone who is already forgiven. Not to earn or prove or, or, or give something back to God, but because you've already been forgiven and there's nothing for you to pay back. There's no space for guilt in your life because Jesus took it on him. There's no room for condemnation because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1 tells us. There's no space for shame. His cloak of righteousness is enough to cover your shame. Even if that has been like the motivating heartbeat of your Christian life, in these moments you can even lay that shame at the foot of the cross and accept his cloak on your back. And there's no room for fear. When you get to the end of the road, it is not about how hard you've worked or how much you've done, it is about the finished work of Jesus. You have nothing to fear before the God of the universe, the only one ultimately that can't just destroy your body but can be distant from you forever, has welcomed you home. What more do you have to fear? People can do a lot to you but not more than God. And if God is the one that is accepting you and forgiving you, then there's nothing more for you to fear. No guilt, no shame, no fear, no pretending, no performing. And and friend, there's no room for passivity. Listen to me, if you can hear about what Jesus did and say, yeah, yeah, that was for me, but you were unmoved in your spirit at all, can I just ask you to question that for a moment? Like maybe you've heard right answers and and you can kind of fill out the theological pop quiz, but if you were unmoved by Jesus, even a little bit, as a friend, can I just tell you to wake up for a second? That should not be a comfortable place for you to be. If there's no fruit in your life from this incredible forgiveness and freedom you have, what would happen if we were people captivated by a big view of the cross? What would happen if if forgiveness and freedom began to work their way out in your life? Not just as theological answers for a Sunday or a connection group, but actually your heartbeat the motivation behind your service and your love and your evangelism and all of that. What would happen if this became the the background melody of your life? He was forsaken, I'm forgiven and free, I'm accepted, I'm home, I'm known, I'm loved. 
What if that became what you told yourself, whatever situation or struggle you were in? Do you think you'd be more free to tell people about Jesus? Do you think you'd be more free to, to give your stuff, to just love people because he, he's given you everything? Do you think our church would be a light in this city? That even if people hated Christianity and hated what we stood for, they'd feel loved by us and they'd be caught off guard. Do you think the gospel would be adorned and our Savior would be held high for people to see? He was forsaken so you can be forgiven and free. Let's invite him to keep transforming us to live that out, not just right answers, but moving into our emotions, out into our hands and into the everyday stuff of life. Let's pray. Jesus, I confess with my friends here that I am so prone to pretending or performing or being passive. Like depending on the day, sometimes depending on the hour, I see in my heart this, this tendency to treat the, the cross as something small and to kind of move on. This morning, would you jar us and arrest us with a big view of the cross? That as we, as we see all that you took for us, everything you went through for us, that wouldn't just be like a, a nice example, but that would shape our entire lives, you were forsaken so we could be forgiven and free. And even this morning, if, if we're feeling alone or abandoned, would you comfort us there? Jesus, you can relate to, to all the things that we go through. At their core, you have experienced fear and shame. You've been called guilty. You've been forsaken. And so you can meet us in those places today. Would you comfort us the one whose hands and feet bar, bear scars for eternity, would you comfort us today with what you accomplished for us to be forgiven and free? We pray these things in your name for your glory. Amen.